Hello and welcome to episode 31 of the Asian Cinema Film Club. I'm your host, as always, Elwood. And joining me, of course, is the Professor, Mr. Stephen Palmer. Hello, everybody. And tonight we're going to be talking about the Summer Hung directed and starring and produced uh, Eastern Condors from 1987, a real fun chock socky movie um, that combines elements of Rambo and the Dirty Dozen with a whole host of uh, Hong Kong's finest. Um, Stephen will also have another tale from the dark side of Asian cinema, but before we get into that, um, I think it's obviously a good chance to ask, as always, what you've been watching, and Stephen, I mean, has there been anything since last one? Um, no, but then okay. that might spoil how quickly we um, <laughs> recorded these two episodes back to back. It has been a little <laughs> bit of a short period, hasn't it? Um, yeah, but I, I have today um, received a parcel from yesasia.com, um, which contains um, the late Zabin Pang movie, Misdemeanor. So I am very much looking forward to watching that because he's a favourite director of mine and one that I haven't really brought to the attention of the podcast yet. So I must sort that out. Oh, very nice. Um, as for myself, I've got one thing that I've seen, and I, it kind of goes that line between whether it can be classed as Asian cinema or Western cinema, and that's uh, Batman Ninja from last year. Uh, now, this is from the director uh, Takushi Akazuki. I'm going to just apologise already. That would probably mispronounce the hell out of that. But basically, he created Afro Samurai, and here he was given a chance to basically do a Asian twist on the Batman mythos which in this version we see Gorilla Grodd creating a uh, what he calls a quake engine which causes time to be displaced and Batman and the whole Batman family and various Batman villains all transferred back to feudal Japan. Uh, Batman waking up two years after everyone sort of landed in there only to find that the major villains have now established themselves as feudal lords and he has to team up with uh team up with um his followers who it turns out have been prophesizing his with his arrival in feudal japan so he has his own squad of batman ninjas and uh yeah it's a really really fun twist it's got that real great anime style to it and if you haven't checked it out much like any of the dc animated films i would really urge you to just check them out because they're not like kids cartoons these are like proper adult animations like i saw the dark knight returns uh two part of that was really great um i also saw their take on the killing joke and we've got the long halloween also coming up from dc animated so there's really great stuff there and i know baba weto for at flight tights movie nights has constantly said how great these dc animated films are and I sort of uh, wish I'd listened to him a bit sooner because it feels like I've been missing out on something. But this particular one is just absolutely nuts. It's not only is it just it's not enough for them to sort of like put Batman in feudal Japan, but it's also feudal Japan where we have like these supervillains commanding these giant robots that all form a super like Power Rangers style, Super Sentai style robot, and there's a huge epic battle in the the fields of hell. It's just really overly dramatic, and the character design is absolutely fantastic, even though a lot of the major villains, like Deadshot and Penguin and Poison Ivy, are kind of put on the back bench as it's really sort of a Gorilla Grodd and Joker movie, as they're the ones who really sort of get the top billing here for the villain side of things. But I love uh, the twist that they put on all these characters, um, especially like characters like Red Hood, who basically looks like one of the basket men from uh, Sister Street Fighter, but he's obviously got a red basket. Um, I was also showed how little I know about current Batman situation as I knew obviously about you know the original Robin goes off to become Nightwing and the, there's a Robin who fold in but apparently there's another one called Red Robin and there's someone called Red Hood who I had no idea who these people are but you know it's all fun stuff um, have you seen Batman Ninja yet because it is on Netflix I haven't seen Batman Ninja I remember when you mentioned it I mean it's been out a couple of years I'm thinking maybe uh, a year yeah it's maybe. last year it was... yeah um, I, I haven't seen it but I, I'm kind of intrigued by it obviously um, I guess I speak a lot and also on my own podcast I've spoken about how I'm a big comic book nerd anyway and I could explain to you about Red Robin and Red Hood <laughs> okay um, Red Hood I thought was who the Joker was before he became the Joker he was sort of like a bank robber and he put the Red Hood on so do you remember the second Robin the one that got killed by the yeah, Jason Todd. Jason Todd. Well, Jason Todd came back. 
and okay. masqueraded as a character called the Red Hood. And then we found out he was Jason Todd. Um, Red Robin is the third Robin. Okay. Um, what's his name? Tim Drake. That's how he goes. But that's the name he goes by now. Um, there's also uh, there, there, there's multiple Batgirls and there's. Oh, Azrael was Batman for a bit, and Nightwing was Batman for a bit. It's it's freaking complicated. I'm not a big fan of DC Comics for this reason. <laughs> However, <laughs> I would absolutely um, agree with what the other guys said. The DC animated films are fantastic. Uh, whilst Marvel might have sorted out how to do a how to do a live action film, and DC are still sort of struggling a bit with with varied success. Their animated catalogue. There's some income. I don't know, there's like 30, 40 of them. Um, sometimes they adapt uh, a, a comic book story, um, uh, like some that you mentioned, like The Dark Knight, um, and then things like the Doomsday Story, um, the Wonder Woman one's quite good. Really good one is the one about uh, they do Darwin Cook's, um, oh, I forget what it's called, but Darwin Cook's New Frontier and things like that yeah. and I watched one very recently I just caught it by accident which was Justice League versus the Fatal Five which isn't fundamentally based on anything but it uses Legion of the Superhero Villains with Justice League whilst introducing one of the new Green Lanterns they've got in place and it's just really good fun um, and I guess it all comes from that Batman animated series the Superman animated series yeah. and, and that, 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 that quality of animation and that creation of an of a world um in their animation in terms of their style but also bringing you know bringing bringing to life popular comic book runs not all of them are great you know there, there are some some bad eggs in there but uh, i'm interested in batman ninja because obviously it's playing off that whole elseworlds thing which is dc's version of what if where they they put their characters gotta be honest it's usually batman or superman in other circumstances yeah and so and, and that kind of works but what's really interesting here this isn't some americans trying to pretend what ninjas look like this is um this is like a real fusion between american and japanese um artists um and creators rather than just sort of playing on a what people think ninjas are and stuff like that so i'm interested to see it because i couldn't recommend those and you know if you like an animated movie um and they're not just for kids they're, they're really entertaining um I'd, I'd recommend at least half of them mm. i mean this one also fe- more surprisingly it features uh buster from arrested development doing the voice of the joker okay as uh, a tony hale and i was really surprised how good he is he especially after um how flat the uh joker was on because they had um oh the guy who played Ben on uh, Lost, it does the uh, voice of the Joker in Dark Knight uh, Returns, and I thought it was a little flat. Because um, I think this is the thing. Because with Mark Hamill, we kind of spoilt us and on how how the Joker can be played. So we, everything everything after that has been kind of been compared to how Mark Hamill did it. So Tony Hale's done a really nice version. It's good sort of cackly. It's really sort of manic, and it really suits this this whole world. I mean, if you liked Afro Samurai, I think you really like this because again it's like blending of like feudal japan and modern technology yes at times it makes absolutely no sense and there's just really random moments where they're trying to do like a like a map screen so they can show batman's progress and it's just some guy rolling a scroll while harley quinn holds like little stick symbols next to it so but um you mentioned obviously Azrael, um obviously the nightfall storyline and how that becomes like how the batman's not about technology and they touch upon that again in this one the fact that bruce has these bits and pieces of technology and they're basically all stripped away in the first sort of battle with the joke and he has to like go back and like learn samurai skills to sort of for this ultimate sort of confrontation so and yeah it's um it's constantly inventive which is the thing i liked about it and the animation itself is it looks absolutely stunning so uh if you've got netflix definitely check it out and some of the other ones you can also get on the sky movies if you're you know rich and can afford the movie channels it's kind of interesting i was just looking up about it it's not technically it's yeah it's weird it's um i'm <sighs> This is I'm, I'm tripping over my words. It's um it's canonicity in the um <laughs> in the DC animated universe is 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 a bit bizarre. Um and actually there's two versions of it. There's a Japanese one 
and an American one were completely different scripts from the sound of it. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so, I was, if you watch the subs um, for it, it's a lot deeper, <laughs> the dialogue in the Japanese version, than if you're watching the American version. Yeah, that's kind of that, that's kind of fascinating. I'm 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 really intrigued now, and I will probably get around to watching it. I'm I'm really interested to see what uh, what you make of that one. But yeah, that's the that's really what sort of where, where it's sort of uh, like. Cause obviously, since the last time we we spoke, um, I've, I've, been I've basically just, I've just remembered. Yep. Because we had a special guest on last week, I didn't mention this, but um, I have watched a film that you'll be very interested in. Okay. I've seen Godzilla, King of the Monsters. Oh, have you now? <laughs> I, I I managed to get round to what to get round to seeing that, and um... <laughs> lucky to find a cinema still showing it because it's not happening around here. I'll tell you that much. Yeah, no, I was very very fortunate to um to get to see it. Um, and I think you're, I think you will enjoy it. Yeah, I think it's stupid. <laughs> I think it. Um, I can see why people not invested in kaiju movies had big criticisms of it. Yeah. But if you want to see American... A bit like we just talked about Batman Ninja, I suppose. If you want to see American versions of characters like Rodan, of King Ghidorah, and especially Mothra, who's really the, the star of the piece... Um, done by somebody the director is somebody who is absolutely invested in the in the kaiju movie genre yeah it's full of even i could see it was full of little tips and nods and easter eggs and if you know if, if you know your stuff you will get so much out of that film um is it a bit too loud and noisy are the effects a bit too washed out? Is there a bit too much CGI? Yes. Are the human characters a bit meh? Um, but then that's no different to a standard Japanese kaiju movie, is it? Um, does it really link terribly well with uh, the Skull Island film? You know, the, 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 this, this, I've, got, I've got issues with it. But my God, what a load of fun that is. And... Um, I think that if you really like that genre of films, you will look beyond the criticisms which have rightfully been levelled at it and have a huge amount of fun and spend hours saying, oh, well, that's meant to be that and that's meant to be that. And, um, yeah, it's done with love, which wasn't what I was expecting. Um, I thought the Gareth Edwards film was was, was... lacking heart i thought it was technically fine i thought it was boring as hell in aspects but you know the final the final act was great um this has got so much heart in it and it's almost a shame that it hasn't been successful because of the amount of love that's clearly been put into it yeah definitely it's um one i've got pre-ordered um i actually made sure to to book my tickets in advance for uh once upon a time in hollywood because we got two showings my local cinema. It's not. It's a brand new Quentin Tarantino movie, and you think, oh, they have it like every single showing they can, but it's like two showings. There's one on Wednesday, and one on Thursday, and then it's completely nothing at all. Uh, that, so I've made sure true? to book him for that. Oh my god, that's amazing! You don't live in the backwards. <laughs> no, I don't know. I guess it's a little too highbrow for the crowds around here. It is long. No. It is long, so uh, I guess that affects it uh, a little bit. But you'd have thought. It, it, you'd have thought. A screen for a couple of weeks. <laughs> I would have thought so. I would have thought, you know, Tarantino, he's the sort of guy who still sells some tickets in this town. But um, yeah, I have no idea what's going on. And my alternative is to go to Portsmouth, which, you know, means crossing our version of the River Sticks on our questionable ferry service or driving around <laughs> around it, which is, Antonio is no fun thing either. Um, so. I'm going. I've. I might. I just thought. You know. I'm just going to cut the whole issue out, and I'm just going to book in advance. So, um, by the next episode, I should be able to give you more of an insight on that, and certainly. And we can follow up on the whole Bruce Lee question, can't we? We can. Um, I mean, certainly from our previous episode with Tom, um, he's given me so much to watch. I mean, I've got the Sleepy Eyes of Death sitting there to watch still, and I've got some other uh, bits and pieces that he's sent across as well. So, yeah. I'm safe to say I've been kept busy by Tom, so thanks for that, Tom. Um, 
If you uh, haven't checked our previous episode, then please do, where we talked obviously about sort of vengeance. Um, and, you know, we had a really good conversation with uh, with Tom Cano about his whole writing process and his sort of bits, his sort of love for Asian cinema, really. And it's just a really fun discussion we had with, with him. So yeah, definitely was, check that out. It was honestly one of my favourite episodes to record. I didn't feel I participated as much, but Tom's a fascinating character and brought so much insight to things. Um I just found it really enjoyable. So, yeah, thank you for bringing him on. Yeah. That's it for what we've been watching. I guess it's uh, up to you, Stephen, to take the reins and take us into the uh, depths and f- of scum and villainy that is the dark side of Asian, dark side of Asian cinema. We haven't done one of these for a while, so um, settle down, everybody, and I, I shall begin. The Asian film industry is like every other film industry. There are links to organised crime, suicides, murders, salacious gossip... And in this occasional series, I'm having a look at these darker sides of Asian cinema and tell you some tales about famous names that they don't always want you to hear. Now, in this episode, it's a little different. I'm not going to talk about murders and suicides, but of the stranger-than-fiction story of Choi Yun-hee and Shin Sang-ok, a tale of infidelity, of kidnapping, a film-obsessed dictator, and just for Elwood, a proletariat kaiju. Choi Eun-hee was born in 1926 in what was then known as Japanese Korea. In 1945 she made her first appearance on the screen and by the time 1948's The Son of Night was released she was a Korean superstar known as one of the troika of Korean film actresses. In 1954 she married director Shing Sang-ok and the two founded the Shin Film Company. Choi would go on to star in about 130 films, including several directed by her husband, including 1958's Flower in Hell and 1961's The House Guest of My Mother, both of which are considered Korean classics of the time. The pair were unable to conceive and they ended up adopting two children. However, in 1976 the pair divorced, when Choi found out that Shin had fathered not one, but two children with another actress, Oh Soo Mi. And as we've spoken about before, such scandals are not something that South Korea can handle, and her career entered a sharp decline. A couple of years later, and Choi was approached by a Hong Kong businessman, who suggested she could help him start a new film production company, and Choi was interested in the very least of finally making some money. She travelled to Hong Kong, and was on the way to meet the businessman at one of Hong Kong's islands, when her car was stopped near Repulse Bay. A group of men grabbed her, put her on a waiting boat, and sedated her. She awoke some hours later in the captain's cabin of a freighter. Looking down at her was the smiling face of North Korean leader Kim Il-sung. Around a week later, she was installed into a luxurious villa in Pyongyang. Her ex-husband had remained close to Choi despite the divorce and his infidelity and concerned for Choi, he also went to Hong Kong to look for her soon after her disappearance. Unsurprisingly, Shin was also kidnapped and taken to North Korea. What was this all about? Well, the son of Kim Il-sung, Kim Jong-il, was a huge movie buff and was in charge of the North Korean film industry, which at this point was mostly a vehicle for propaganda. But he loved Western movies, his eclectic taste covered Stallone's First Blood, anything starring Elizabeth Taylor, and for some reason, James Bond films. He would get his foreign diplomats to secure copies of films for him when out performing their diplomatic functions. He wanted nothing more than to create movies that would be recognised internationally. And what better way to kickstart an industry than by importing talent, even if it was via kidnapping. It took five years for the pair to break. They were incarcerated during this time, sometimes together in comparative luxury, but Shin was also sent to prison when he failed to commit. Kim Jong-il took personal attention to Shin and spent hours talking about movies and aspects of film production with him. Eventually, the brainwashing and coercion worked. The pair remarried and worked together with the younger Kim to produce a series of seven films. The best known are probably 1985 Salt, which actually garnered Choi a Best Actress Award at the Moscow International Film Festival, and a film I think we've mentioned on the podcast before, the kaiju movie Pulgasari, which turned a mythical giant beast into a socialist hero. 
Eight years into their captivity, the couple had finally earned the trust of Kim Jong-il. He approved a trip to Vienna in Austria to take part in a film promotion. The pair only needed this one chance. They quickly sought sanctuary at the United States Embassy. North Korea were quick to deny any involvement in any kidnapping, but the couple had managed to sneak out a secret recording of Kim that seemed to verify their claims. Some people didn't and still don't think the story added up, and that they had simply chosen to defect. Others feel their story is consistent with those that have been broken by indoctrination, and they seem to be suffering still from symptoms of Stockholm Syndrome, where they had become sympathetic with their captors. Even after they returned to South Korea years later, the pair would offer up apologies to Kim for their betrayal. The pair lived a couple of years under CIA protection in Virginia, where they gave recollections of their impressions of North Korean society and Kim Jong-il. Shin didn't want to go back to South Korea, as he felt his story was not being believed. The couple went and lived in LA for a while, and Shin directed a couple of films under the pseudonym Simon Sheen. Um, one film he directed was called Three Ninjas Knuckle Up, a prequel to Three Ninjas Kick Back, which itself was a sequel to Three Ninjas. This was not high art. Now as wild and crazy as this story sounds, this is very much a tale that isn't unique. Some 500 South Koreans are suspected to have been abducted by the northern regime, some just hapless fishermen who sailed too close to the northern county's coast, but others were specifically taken for their skills. Five students, for example, were taken in 1977-78 and thought to have been dead for 20 years. But then, they were found to have been converted to act as instructors to teach North Korean spies about South Korean society. More recently, we have the issue of the Japanese nationals kidnapped by the North Koreans that hit the headlines when in 2002, five Japanese nationals were returned at home, although uh, Japan was told that a further eight had died during their incarceration. It's still a touchy subject politically. Kim Jong-il would inherit North Korea in 1994, and the pair eventually returned to South Korea in 99, but Shin was in bad health. He had a liver transplant in 2004, and in 2006 he died from complications from hepatitis. His contribution to the arts was recorded posthumously when South Korean President Ro Moo-hyun awarded Shin the country's top artistic honour, the Gold Crown Cultural Medal. Choi lived until April the 16th, 2018, when she died in hospital whilst awaiting her kidney dialysis. She did live to see a British documentary feature based on her story called Lovers of the Despot released, and her passing was mourned widely across the Korean peninsula. And that's today's story. Very nice, Stephen. Now on to our feature presentation for this evening. That's it, we're talking about Eastern Condors in 1987, um, a film... As we mentioned already, it's uh, sort of equal parts Dirty Dozen as it is Rambo, and here we it's a uh, film also directed, produced, and starring Samuel Hung, um, an actor who we've obviously we covered once before on the show already. We talked about him when we did uh, Petty Cow Driver, and this is very much a different sort of film than what we've previously seen him in. Um, as for this is a role that he actually slimmed down and it's a very it's a lot more serious it's less of his usual canto comedy that we've come to sort of expect from him because obviously we had the the triple threat of uh, both Samo Hung, Jackie Chan and Yun Yun Biao um, who obviously did, would have gone to do films like Project A um, and Wheels on Meals and uh, here, while we obviously have uh, Yong Biao and uh, Sam Hung, we're also joined by a host of top names from the Hong Kong sort of film industry. We've got Billy Chow, um, who someone most memorably had that big showdown with in Pedicab Driver. We've got Yong Wu Ping, legendary choreographer. We've got Ko Yun, as well as uh, Yat Lam Ching Ying and uh, Yun Wah. We've also got the future uh, Mrs. Hung in uh, Joyce uh, Godin Zing. So uh, it's a really impressive cast, especially if you're up to speed on who everyone is in, in the sort of Hong Kong film industry. There's a lot of, uh, sort of names to look out for here. Um, the film itself, it sees this rag band 
group of uh, Chinese American soldier convicts who are sent to Vietnam to destroy a, an old American bunker which has been filled with missiles and other weaponry and the plan is to obviously to blow this uh, ammo dump up before the Viet Cong can discover where it, where it is. Along the way they team up with a trio of Cambodian freedom fighters as well as as well as acquiring uh, intel from a man uh, called Weasel who's sort of uh, taking refuge in the local local small village. Now, Stephen, I mean, obviously this is a bit of a change of pace for Summer Hunk. I mean, you've seen his comedic stuff and now here he is doing something a little more serious. I mean, how did you find this film first off? Um, I have really, really mixed feelings about it. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I just... It's one of those things that it, it's clearly... I would say it's an homage to films like Thirty Dozen, right? But it's a rip-off. And, 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 it, and it rips off Deer Hunter. And it rips off <laughs> other things as well. Um, but then lots of Hong Kong films did that at, at this time. Um, this is the 80s, right? Um, yeah. It's got an amazing cast. Loads of it doesn't make any sense. Like... Half of the crimes those guys are committed, it would not be worth doing this to get out of jail for. They'll be out in, <laughs> in a couple of years. Apart from Hung himself, who, who's, done, who's in there for 30 years, I see no reason why the others would have got involved, although there's, there's money involved, isn't there? I don't understand why the girls, who are very impressive, are Cambodian freedom fighters, but the film's set in Vietnam. However, all those, all those criticisms of, of homage, plagiarism, of nonsense plot, of um, plot holes are cast aside because it's so gloriously violent and <laughs> and and brilliant and bit you know action bits are brilliantly choreographed and hands get chopped off and kids like I say deer hunter style sort of play this Russian roulette game and the females are equally as powerful as the men. In terms of their skills, um, I think it falls. I think it falls off a bit when we meet the final, the boss, the final boss. I don't think that's done quite as well. And you get Samo Hung, who, like you say, has slimmed down for this. He's taken it seriously because he think he realised that being a his normal, um, and I'm putting rabbit ears around this, his his fatty character, and the, and the comedic side of it probably wouldn't work so well in this film. Makes it a really interesting action film that is actually really unique not just amongst Hung's films but in, in Hong Kong cinema period yeah I mean I mean as you said already some of slimmed down for this for three months he ate nothing but chicken and rice and it was just basically the fact that he felt that his figure would not suit a soldier um, it was more it was more suited for his usual comedic roles so for him to play a soldier he just completely slimmed down I mean gone is the sort of you know the funny Beatles haircut and here he has a pretty sort of Sean Haircut. Um, can't be same. Same can't be said for Yumbyon and his bizarre. Was it a fringe or how do we describe that? That boy band haircut that he he's modelling in this one. His bangs. His bangs. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. But <laughs> um, got a different memo to everyone else about what 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 soldiers in Vietnam were dressed as. It should also be said that his character. His subtle mode of transport is a, a huge motorcycle trike with balloons and a big stereo strapped to the front. And this is his, you know, his subtle uh, getting around town vehicle of choice. The plot itself, it's, it is a real bit, bit stupid. I mean, the fact that for these guys, if they survive the mission, they're going to be given a pardon, US citizenship, as well as uh, $200,000. Um, and... Yeah, they they've all they've all got these very minor sort of crimes as apart from from Samo, and at the same time they've all got really bizarre sort of uh, nicknames like Siggy, which I can't imagine is something that doesn't really translate really over here. No, but we see this a lot in Hong Kong movies. Um, that they they love a nickname, don't they? I guess because lots of people have similar names. So they always, and, but usually these nicknames are a bit on the nose. Like um, I think I've spoken before that every Hong Kong film seems to have a fatty. Siggy, yeah. <laughs> Siggy's a little, a little more subtle, I think. We obviously follow these, uh, these sort of, even before we get 
into the Vietnam stuff, we see the these two sort of recruiting soldiers. Uh, one of them does a, a climbs a flagpole to uh, help a flag that's been stuck. And I had to question: Do you know if a flag does get stuck while they're doing reveille, do they have to just keep standing there blowing the horn until it gets unstuck, or is that? Well, ne- never been in the armed forces. I'm not sure, but I, I have a feeling not. <laughs> like, at have, what point do we give up? <laughs> I have a feeling you play so many bars, and that's the end of it. But yeah, I mean the the film's full of. It's like um, it's got really weird tone like that because there's there's, there's this whole level of it which has comedic bits like that. You know, all all the way through it, some of it is a bit daft. That that's being nice, but at the same time, it is a war movie and it's freaking dark and people get killed in quite emotional ways, don't they? Yeah, I've been, I mean, I you say that, but at the same time, this isn't like a horrors of war style story. It's like no. a more boys on adventure. It's kind of like when you watch like Inglorious Bastards, like the original um, Italian version, or if you're watching, as I said, like Dirty Dozen, Eagles where Eagles Dare. It's that sort of like gung ho adventure. Yes, we're going to lose people on the way, but it's, at the same time, it's yeah. not. I tell you what, it reminded me of. It was like an Asian take. Or do you remember like um those little sort of pocketbook comics that we used to have in the UK, like Commando? Oh, like Commando. Yeah, yeah. that's what it reminded me of. But apart from it, it had Asian people in it, where the it wasn't. It, there was a mixture of realism and and just over the topness that works in that sort of 48 page comic book style and, and that's what it was trying to do here that's the only thing I can equate it to yeah and I mean these these guys they're not really given much much training and they're, they're, they're set opposite their sort of like uh, military counterparts who are along the, on the way to to their drop site are blown up so it's basically just these convict soldiers that are left for it and even then the mission's called off but uh, their sort of leader Yam decides, you know, we're just going to go ahead and do it, which I'm sure is real great for these guys that have just now jumped in when they had no real aspirations to go to Vietnam in the first place. And from here, we obviously go into, you know, we start meeting up with the Cambodian guerrillas um, who are led by Godzinki. Now, she isn't, at this stage of her career, she's not actually a trained martial artist. So she's no more as a beauty pageant contestant so she was brought in just on on the fact that she you know she's a pretty girl that we can put into our movie i mean she'd only made about three or four films before this because she did like seven curse in 1986 uh spooky spooky and ghost snatchers again all 1986 and then she obviously comes into this one and this is again it's a very it's different sort of role than she was playing before but i mean prior to that i mean 1965 she's taking part in the miss hong kong pageant um on behest of her modeling agency who had a thing about grooming their models to become pageant um sort of queens and they'd done the same the same the previous year with maggie chung so basically to the spice when she managed to win the title as well as the miss phonogenic award um and then she went on to obviously compete in miss universe in 1984 in miami where she was unplaced, uh, but she did win fair prize in the national costume contest. And it's really, as I said from here, she just then goes into making making these films. But when you look at her later films, such as things such as like License to Steal and She Shoots Straight, so around 1990, she's a lot more competent as a martial artist and she has a lot more confidence there. But even now when we're looking at her these early films, I think she's still a really good presence on here, even though a lot of the knife throwing sequences make no sense whatsoever. Um, yeah, no, I th- I think she's the standout character, really. Um, it's funny uh, here in the UK we have a we have a bit of a down view of pageants, don't we, and beauty contests and things like that in the modern age. And I'm not here to pass um, comment on whether that's a good or a bad thing. But it's a you, bad thing because Trump's involved. <laughs> that's true, but um, <laughs> but uh, I'm thinking more about the objectification of women and things like that. But certainly, oh, yeah. certainly in Hong Kong, um, that has been a route to success. You mentioned Maggie Chung, um, also of course Asia. So um, Michelle Yeoh was also a, a beauty queen, in, but in she was she was Miss Malaysia. Malaysia. Yeah, and I think. I think it is still 
a route like that 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 people take of certainly women anyway don't have any male beauty queens i guess but that women can take as a stepping stone to working in the um in in cinema and in film um possibly now has only been overtaken by appearing in reality tv shows or something like that but uh i thought you know going back i thought she was i thought she was fantastic she was for me the memorable character of the film um and to, when you say you know she was she was no martial artist um yeah all right a bit rough around the edges but it is interesting that um in a film full of fantastic martial artists yeah at least three of them are more more than three of them are, are you know would hold a film on their own as martial artists i thought that she stood out was was amazing yeah and i mean I, you obviously question the fact that we've got cambodian guerrilla fighters here in vietnam but at the same time because they these characters are so sort of fun and they fill that role of you know the man or in this case the woman on the on the ground so the local sort of guy they fill that sort of role and when you compare look at the other options we have here i mean we've obviously got weasel played by yon biao and his um supposedly insane uncle but uh we won't won't uh, talk too much about about him who the insane uncle character just annoyed me so much um he was just like so overplayed and for someone who's um i mean i'm just gonna i think we're just gonna min, min, minus spoiler here but yeah he turns out that he's actually faking his mental illness but this isn't before he's potentially given away the position of uh of samuel and several the other characters who were hiding in his house at the time to this patrol that's uh going past so i wasn't sure what to really think of his character particularly um no again i think um I think this comes back to what I was saying about the sort of the, the two-track line this film takes. Um, you know, there's there's the comedy mentally ill person, another trope of Hong Kong cinema. Um, but then it goes a bit dark, doesn't it? Because he does give it away. Um, that's he's played by um, the guy from the Killing Fields, isn't he? So again, it's another 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 name, probably not famous from Hong Kong cinema, but uh, someone who would make his. Uh, make his mark on sort of international cinema maybe in a slightly different way uh yeah it's uh hang Nogo, who sadly was uh killed back in 96 and i mean you, you said i mean you obviously mentioned already the fact he's won an academy award for supporting actor he was actually it's a very small group that he belongs to because um i think he was like the first asian to win best supporting actor i want to say i don't know if that's I can't think of anybody else, certainly not a male actor, certainly not a female actor, yeah. So, yeah, he was uh, the first and only Asian to win Best Supporting Actor in a debut performance, um, the second Asian actor to ever win an Oscar, and one of the few um, amateur a- actors to win an Oscar. Because, I mean, as I said, he came in as uh, his first role was in, as I said, in The Killing Fields, so that was mm. 1984. So, um, that's really the sort of start of his acting career and then he goes on to do things like Oliver Stone's Heaven and Earth, uh, that forgotten third part of his Vietnam trilogy because everyone remembers you know, Platoon and Born on the Fourth of July but everyone forgets about Heaven and Earth. Is that the one with Tommy Lee Jones? Yes, it's the one with yeah, Tommy Lee Jones. Yeah, I saw that at the cinema. So, um, it's a bit, um, it's, it's more, that's more about um, coming home, isn't it? And, uh, and, and post-traumatic stress and the like. Um... Yeah, and then obviously come ninety six, he's uh, shot shot dead outside his house in uh, Chinatown. Um, so it, it's still really unsure where the reason why he was killed. Um, I know that they charged three members of the Oriental Lazy Boy Street Gang with the murder. So, but no, it's uh, one of those very sad uh, sort of mysteries. There really sounds like the subject for a future dark tales. <laughs> you talked already about the many tracks that the tone of the film takes the film itself also goes on these really bizarre moments where it can't decide where it wants to be because obviously it starts off as you know the men on the mission we've got that uh dirty dozen sort of vibe you know they're going to go in and they're going to destroy an ammo dump and then it sort of like becomes a bit of a rambo movie because summer's off and he's there hacking people to death with this giant machete and you know he's doing he's like He's a one-man army. He's like 
hiding in trees. He's turning grass blades into deadly weapons, and and then we get finally get to the ammo dump, and it turns into kind of a Bond movie because it's not really an ammo dump. It looks look like somewhere that uh, Doctor Evil would hide out. It does look like what if the Blue Peter Studio was used to hold um, <laughs> missiles. Um, again, and 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 it's. I tell you what, I felt it was. You said you absolutely. You said um, Hong Kong, uh, uh, James Bond movie. It, it reminded me of like a of a cheap version of You Only Live Twice. That's exactly right. <laughs> but, but 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 done in the Blue Peter Studio in terms of size. <laughs> <laughs> I I, did, I mean I love the fact that we get to this, this finale and they you've got this huge Viet Cong army that uh, this giggling general sent in, but. Because it's so much effort to like film all those people fighting, so we're cut off three quarters of them by closing a door. And apparently, this this army is unable to figure out any other way around. They've got all this equipment, but no one's got like an explosive or anything to blow a door open. So if only the Americans have taken doors to the wars. <laughs> yeah, well, exactly. could have changed. Now, in terms of obviously action, it's a lot more sort of heroic gunplay in this one than sort of martial arts. I mean, we do get bits and pieces of uh, martial arts. Again, this is uh, mainly down to sort of like Summer Hung and Young Biao who are doing sort of the most of the heavy lifting here. Um, Young Biao, I mean, if you're obviously not familiar with him, he's he's kind of like the most underappreciated one of that three, of the three brothers there. Obviously, you mentioned already Summer Hung and Jackie Chan, who he's like friends with. And then you had Young Biao, who was sort of like the third of the party. And I mean, he came up through the Peking Opera School as well, and he was sort of like really noted for his sort of like um, ability in in gym, gymnastics. And I mean, Jackie Chan notes in his autobiography that the first day that he was asked to do a backflip, and he did it like an absolute professional, like his first time doing it. And it sort of carries on for his career the fact that he leaves the Chinese Opera, he goes on to do work as a stuntman. He does like. He's like working on Fist of Fury and Where the Dragon. He also is one of the body doubles in Game of Death. Um, and it's believed that he's like done a lot, a lot of the things which uh, the Taekwondo expert uh, Kim Tai Chung was unable to perform. And so a lot of the scenes were like the fake Bruce is doing like flips and stuff. That's more than likely Yun Biao who's doing those roles. And I feel that he's kind of unappreciated outside of like obviously Hong Kong cinema fans. He feels like, you know, one of these guys who you feel he should have been more, even though he's, I mean, he's had like over 130 films to his credit. And yet he still remains, I think, to most Western viewers, this unknown property. I think he's, if you asked, you know, as someone, someone uninitiated to Yon Biawas, I don't think they'd have the first clue. But if you ask me like Samo Hung or Jackie Chan or even like Donnie Yen, uh, they'd be able to tell you exactly what their favourites are. But Yon Biawas still remains this unknown property of him. I get, I get, I mean, I guess some of that is because Jackie Chan made it to America and his films specifically also sort of wrote the VHS boom. Um, uh, who else? Jet Li also kind of made it in America. Um, who's the other name you mentioned? Uh, Summer Hung had a TV yeah. show. Um, uh, there's a, there's a, uh, even Donnie Yen, you know, he's, he's made it to a Star Wars film, mate. Yeah. So, um, whereas, uh, uh, Yuen Bao, I think, has always not not own, in front of the camera. I don't think he's had like that memorable starring role. He's always been a supporting person. I'm, I'm sure you, you can point at me that out of the 130 films, is not. But he's 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 done so much work behind the scenes as an action director, as an action choreographer, as a co-director, as a stuntman. He's like kind of almost like the glue that's holding all these films together because if you look at his um i was just having a look at his the films that he's been involved with and from 1972 fist of fury through to um uh, let's have a look um a film i talked about legend of wing chung that i talked about in, in a previous dark tale story you know he's he's for for 30 years has been in or involved in some of the best films of Hong Kong cinema. So yeah, I think I think you're right. I think he, he doesn't hasn't had the credit, but I think it's because he never he never left Hong Kong, or he never left China at the very least, um, and and just maybe never really had that starring role to, that, that 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 the others had. Yeah, um, he's obviously continued to appear in 
in in many sort of the key purposes. And I think it's also it helps the fact that he's obviously his friendship with Samo and and Jackie. The fact he's constantly done projects with them, even now. Um, I think most recently his it's just sort of like going through them and yeah, Shanghai Noon. I mean, he was in two thousand. He but again, that's more sort of stunt work. He's there was one of the saloon fighters. So he while he's he's done bits and pieces in America, but it's always been sort of like the more stunt work side of things. Um, but here, I mean, here he's really good. He has some really energetic sort of fight sequences. And I go back and forth over who has the best sort of moments in the, in the film here. Because obviously Samuel gets his fair share of great stand-up moments in the in the finale. And Yumbo obviously has his as well. Though at one point he seems to be dead and then miraculously comes back for the finale. So make of that what you will. But... Even going into this, knowing it was a Dirty Dozen movie, so you know that not everyone's going to get out. Um, I mean, did it still surprise you when you sort of lost someone, especially at the end where we seem to be losing guys left, right, and center? I, I felt all the way through the film, every, I, I, I never felt Summer Hung was at risk, right? Yeah. But, but that that's by the by. That That's the nature of the film. But I did feel that anyone could go at any moment, um, uh, which I think is an important thing you know films like the dirty dozen or one of the films i used to love when i was going it was the wild geese the richard burton film which is um similar sort of where, where people would just die throughout the film and you thought well he was my favorite oh well he's been hacked to death by machetes so i got that kind of you know <laughs> I, i'm not a huge fan of war films but i do love that obviously tarantino does as well you know that 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 get that ragtag group of villains and near-to-wells and get them to prove themselves in the theatre of war. I've always enjoyed that kind of thing, because you kind of combine it with a heist movie or something like that. And and this one, it decided to combine it with a with a James Bond plot. But <laughs> that's okay. That's okay, because it's enjoyable, because, because you don't know who's going to survive. You don't know. You know, you, you, you... There is that on that first watch, that excitement about... You know the characters that you're backing that you enjoy, or even the ones that you don't like, and you do wish are, are, are killed, and, and they're not. So I, I, I enjoy, I enjoy. It. I think that sort of it does that kind of film really well, and uh, I was really surprised by it actually. Hmm. Um, now you, we obviously mentioned already at the end the sort of James Bond sort of setting, and we do obviously get our own sort of Bond villain of sorts in uh, Yun Wah, who plays the giggling Vietnamese general. Um, who I was surprised how tough he actually was, because in in traditional Hong Kong terms, like the longer you laugh as a villain, the tougher you're going to be in your fight. And the fact he's just doing this weird giggle uh, would seem to indicate, and the fact he's also wearing wearing wicker sandals would seem to indicate he's not going to be particularly tough. But he actually was pretty surprisingly tough, and he uh, his demise in particular was, I think it. It perfectly ties in against that bomb villain because he has a proper bomb villain death. Yeah, he does. <laughs> um, the old grenade to the mouth, which the only other time I can remember seeing that is in Man from Hong Kong, because um, that's the fate of uh, George Lazenby's uh, drug baron character who uh, who gets the same sort of fate in that. But yeah, it's it's always amusing to see someone die with a grenade to the mouth. Yeah, it it yeah it, it it feels akin to the um in the James Bond film where the guy gets um killed by the compressed air tank. <laughs> oh god, the stupid air pallet thing. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. but yeah, that's that kind of thing. But I mean, it's um yeah, it's but isn't this isn't this sort of classic? We, we've talked about this before, where we, we talk about so I've we've talked before about like Korean films having a sudden genre shift. Whereas Hong Kong films just seem to make it up as they go along and just let's have it all. Let's have sort of this of this golden age, you know. That let's have a war film and let's borrow liberally from a load of Western war films, but we'll also oh I do fancy doing a bit of James Bonding at the end and I do want it to have these funny outlandish moments with like you say with the guy the bike uh, the giant motorbike and the balloons, but at the same time we're gonna be really, really serious. But we'll also have a giggling general and we'll have you know, it's um there's so much going on here. I can see why it's it's a real sort of fan favourite, isn't it? I haven't found anybody really who's going to say a bad word about it. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely got that sort of fan appeal. Uh, there's a lot of people who definitely really like 
like this film. My main sort of problem I have with it is just really sort of the the pacing because it starts off strong and then we have this real kind of tedious middle bit and then we get into the last half hour and it sort of really comes into its own again. Um, especially when we get to the sort of ammo dump it's and it just all sort of like goes balls to the wall and before that we have like a big bridge siege uh, sequence which is also really fun as well where you get to see that uh, no guts no glory style charge across the bridge which is uh, great. Not only because of the fact you get to see uh, Joyce Godazinki welding a big machine gun alongside you and Blow which is I think it's really cool to see. Yeah, no, I, I'm I'm going to agree with you. Um, the middle section sagged badly, and it nearly turned me off the film. But luckily, it, it kind of rescued itself. Um, so it's not it's not it's not um, it's not like a hundred minutes of constant action at all. Um, it's more like ten minutes of fun followed by twenty five minutes of uh, followed by the rest of the film. <laughs> In scientific terms, it's like being pregnant. You get the joy of uh, everyone cooing over you for the first sort of quarter, and then we get that horrible labour section in the middle, and then we have this awesome last half hour, which is sort of like that endomorphic rush, which makes you forget the whole sagging sort of sequence and uh, the horror of what you've been through to get there. So, But they do obviously try and mix it up. I mean, Samo does, as I said, he's there kicking a lot of ass. He's doing his lone warrior thing and um there are some like really fun fun moments of uh him going absolutely apeshit with big machine guns so there's fun moments in there but as i said just the pacing just kind of really is lacking yeah i just have to i just have to agree I, I i did struggle with it i have to be honest with you on the first watch because because of that pacing um but then you get you get sort of halfway through it and it all picks up and that's the bit I remember. Hmm. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, just even when we look at the, the just to touch again, just how deep the cast is. Yonwa, who I think is going to be another name that may not be familiar to everyone. It depends on how deep you look into cast list. But I mean, he was mainly a stuntman and stunt director. Um, he did a lot of work on like Bruce Lee movies he did like uh, Fist of Fury and the Dragon um, his most notable role you've probably seen him as well in was that he played the landlord in Stephen Chow's Kung Fu Hustle mm-hmm. um, again if we look at Pigsty Alley the depth of acting talent in sort of like the residence there there's so many like old school Hong Kong actors that play different roles especially Landlady yes yes that, that film is full of that um, kind of stuff though <laughs> And she herself, I mean, she was in a James Bond movie as well. She was in Man with a Golden Gun. She was indeed. So. There's a lot of time back to James Bond in this episode for some reason. I have no idea And I didn't know we were going to go there, but yes. (laughs) So, yeah, I mean... I mean, yeah, it's it's a very difficult film to sort of recommend. I mean, there's definitely it's unquestionably got this big call to appeal, and I know there's a lot of people really like it. The guys over at City on Fire really like it, and they've given it some rave reviews. And it's one of those ones I wish I could sort of rave, rave about more, but it's just that, as I say, it's got that tricky middle section which makes it um, makes it one of the harder ones to have to as sort of like as a big recommendation i think it's sort of like more a second tier recommendation for myself if you're aware of who like Sam hung is and you've seen other sort of uh bits and pieces you know like prodigal son or millionaires express then to obviously go into this one and i think there's a lot to enjoy even if you're not sort of a big asian cinema fan there's still it's still got that accessibility to it and the dub isn't particularly bad either so you've if you're a sort of versed to read some subtitles you can get around uh things that way as well Yep, agreed. So I have I have only one question really. Okay. What is this is not the only film with Condor in the title from China. <laughs> <laughs> um, um there's a whole sort of legend of, of um Condor heroes and stuff like that. But Condors are from South America. They are not an Asian uh, bird of prey. Um what 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 is being mistranslated here? Should it be vulture or something like that? I don't I don't know. I've just I've I've, just, I've always found that a complete mystery to me, and I wondered if you had any insight. But if you don't, <laughs> I don't. I mean, it'd be a pure guess. I'm guessing that a condor soars, 
Where vulture, like you look at other big birds, like vultures are scavenger, so that's not complimentary. Eagles, obviously American. Um, yeah. Or Jamaic. No, I mean, but it all it, it all it all comes from these sort of um books, the Condor trilogy books, um, which are from. Oh, I suppose they're from. Okay, so I suppose they're from the fifties. Yeah, um, I thought they were older than that. But because just just how would even a Chinese person know what a condor was? It's just weird, and I just I've just got to assume it's a mistranslating of some other bird of prey. <laughs> okay, and, and it's just interesting. I just think it's interesting that it that it's, it's made it to this movie, which is sort of having a it, it's it's its English title is playing on that. I don't know. I don't know what the original one. Uh, Chinese title of this film actually means I haven't I haven't looked that up, but it's just just I don't know, it's just one of those questions. Let's put it out there to the audience if anyone wants to write in and explain to Stephen why 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 condors are used. That would be fantastic. Yeah, fair enough. Um, is there anything else that yeah? No, not really. I mean, I, when you suggested it, I thought, oh yeah, I've always fancied watching that, and. And then I thought, oh god, it's a war film. And then I thought, oh no, it'll be a comedy war film. And then I realised it was like a Dirty Dozen film. And then I thought, oh, I quite like that. And then I realised it was quite, it was it was going to play these multi, this multi-tonal game with me. And then <laughs> lots of the action was so much fun, and the characters were so interesting. And I, like I said, the strong female characters in the film really surprised me for a film of you know these weren't little damsels in distress. So so much of it was to be enjoyed. I ended up really, really liking it, even though I went into it, and especially of that, that like you say, that sagging second act, thinking, oh, this is going to be a bit of a flop. But it was, it was hugely enjoyable. Um, I, I really, I really would recommend it, although um, it, it's not in a genre which I would normally go for. Yeah, that's uh, that's fine. Um, further watching, I know you had one. I got one. I I really really struggled with this. <laughs> okay. Um. So I, I I was trying to think of other Hong Kong war films maybe to pair it with as my route. Um. Yeah. And I couldn't come up with a single one. And then I looked for other sort of Asian war films, and I couldn't really find anything that wasn't deeply darkly serious. So sort of the Japanese war films tend to be quite. Um. Well, they have a they have a mixed message that they're trying to give out because they don't want to be too rah 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 patriotic, but at the same time they don't want to be defeatist. And then we have the, the Korean War films which we've talked about before, like Brotherhood and and, yeah. and, and stuff like that. And what I actually came up with was a film that was set in the war, <laughs> or set in the Sino-Japanese War, um, that uses. So it's a Chinese film, it's a mainland Chinese film, which is something we haven't really talked about before, starring um, Huang Bo, who's quite a famous, um, well, you, you'd have recognised his face if you've seen any Chinese film in the last 20 years. Not not, not an attractive man, but a leading uh, ex-comedian. So there's that kind of Sammo Hung kind of feel to him, although he's not a martial artist, but in terms of his physical appearance and his comedic side and his talent, um, he, he matches. And it's a film called Cow. Um, li- literally just cow, and it's a it's a it's a humorous film set in the time of war, where um, basically this this villager, um, he's basically the village idiot. That's not that's not wrong. Is told to look after this cow, and it's a cow from Europe, and it gives loads of milk. And then the Japanese, um, is it the Japanese army? No, the Eighth Chinese Army turn up, and then there's a whole there's a whole it's sort of set amongst you know there's that tension in, in within china of the communists and the kumatang armies being together but it's it's also a story about just living in a village and the cows a metaphor for lots of things um so it's a war film that's set it's set in wartime but it's about something else altogether and it's i highly recommend it just as and and, and i think i think it, it just you know, it's 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 a war film in a very different way, but I think the leading performance you will see what I mean when you when you when you see um what what, what Huang Bao's like. Oh great. Um for myself I have a couple. If you want more 
sort of war movies you can check out uh, there's a couple of John Wayne movies you can check out you can check out Here We Shed No Tears uh, from 1986 um, about a group of mercenaries on a mission to extract a drug load from the Indo-China area um, you can also check out Bullet in the Head uh, which is a real sort of standout movie especially for John Woo fans and that one sees um, a trio of friends who escape from Hong Kong to wartime Saigon to start a criminal's life um, in the end going for this sort of like howling experience that sort of changes their lives and friendships and it, I know that uh, for a long time I think until Harbo came out sort of Bullet in the Head was sort of like seen as the you know the benchmark for Wu movies, especially because it was originally envisioned as uh, about more free. But uh, due to production issues, um, that Wu ended up taking the, taking the script that he had and uh, making his own film, which obviously became Bullet in the Head. Um, if you want more sort of Samo and um, Yumbiao movies, then you've got a couple. Uh, that you certainly can check out. The one that sort of stands out straight off would be Millionaire's Express. Um, but I'll also check out The Prodigal Son, which is a Yum Biao starring vehicle. Um, so he's here in the sort of lead role, and uh, it also features Sam Hung as a martial arts uh, mentor in a real particular. has a real sort of standout moment where he's teaching uh, calligraphy that sort of needs to be seen to be believed. So. Those would be my recommendations. You've got some traditional Kung Fu movies there, and you've got a couple of war movies there. So uh, hopefully you find something with those that you like. They, they, they sound good. Like I said, I really struggled because I wanted I wanted to do a war film, but obviously you've managed, you've yeah. managed to find some. But of course, you picked my blind spot, Mr. Wu. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you should, I mean, if you don't want to... If you want to... Want Hong Kong actors shooting guns wildly at each other. I think John Woo's always a good person to check first. Indeed so. he is. Him or Ringo Lam, you can yep. normally find what you're looking for with either of those two directors. I mean, both Bullet in the Head and Hero Should No Tears I've got on the list to look at at some point. So uh, this won't be the last time we obviously discuss those movies. And um, Yeah, so uh, that was obviously Eastern Condors. Um, they have, before we obviously go, uh, make sure you do obviously hit the like and subscribe buttons wherever you happen to be listening to us you can also check us out on the social media we're on facebook twitter and instagram so uh definitely follow us on there and you can check out our full archive uh which is asian cinema film club dot wordpress.com um and as well as not only our archive on there you can find reviews you can find our mixtape uh you can find all sorts of really fun uh stuff on there as well that uh we all Always you to go and check out now. But Stephen, it's your turn to pick next. What are you going to choose? So I'm picking a film we've actually kind of spoken about in our in our sort of early episode chats. Um, mm. A film that on my first watching I really didn't like, but on your first watching you really loved. I'd like us both <laughs> to go back and look at it. It's by one of our favourite directors. I think it's fair to say one of our both our favourite directors. Um, back to Japan again, and it's Sion Sono. And I want to look at his love letter to um, Nakatsu Roman Porno in um anti-porno so um that'll get us an an e on the um on the podcast next time i think always got an e we find some <laughs> way to get the, the explicit warning wherever we do so but no um yeah i mean sion sono has really sort of in recent years sort of picked up the outlaw mantle when takashi Miike sort of left left off and went on to sort of vary his film output and Sion Sono has sort of like become the go-to guy now for uh, those people out there who really wanted more from that outlaw period and I think he's produced some really interesting movies and it's kind of surprising seeing there's a lot of people sort of dismissing when Suicide Club came out but we've had as I said we've had some really interesting things we've had like uh, um, X Terror Excisions we've had um, Codefish we've, and uh, Tokyo Tribe Why Don't You Play in Hell uh, Tag I mean, whether he's doing that sort of like highbrow or sort of the lower budget stuff, there's always something really interesting happening in his work. So, uh, any excuse to uh, to yeah. revisit is always a good one. And uh, and and of course, he, his films seem to get auto releases over here as well, usually from Third Window or or the like. That um, that seems to have some deal with him. That that his mm. films for us Westerners are easy to find. Um, I don't know of any that you can't get. Even even some of the earlier stuff is is possible to get, um, which isn't something you can say. Even you know, even like someone like Takashi Miike, only about 
one in three, one in four of his films actually make it over here. So, so the ability to explore Sono's work is is much easier for us, uh, us Guelos. So, um, yeah, I'm looking forward to talk about that with you because of our initial experiences with the film. Awesome. Um, well, thank you as always for listening, and uh, we will be back obviously next time uh, talking about Antipono. So, until next time, uh, thank you, to Stephen. Thank you for having me. And uh, thank you as always for listening, and uh, we will be back soon. Good night. Hey! 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 Kinono